together and thank you for your grace to us, each one of us, and thank you for those in our class who can be here, and we're thankful for uh, our friend uh, Ken Rapp, and we pray for Ken and Emily. Thank you for the good report we got from Emily about Ken. He seems to be making progress and doing better, and we pray you'll continue to give healing to his body. We pray for Ron, who is in a very difficult situation, and, and, and Sue is... is it's, it's very difficult for her, uh, all the, she has to do to try to help Ron. We pray for Ron that you'll give healing to his body, that the doctors will be able to help him and prescribe the right kind of treatments that he needs to uh, be able to make uh, a better recovery than he's made so far. We just thank you for both these men, their families, and their contribution to our church. We ask you'll bless our time together tonight as we look into your word and uh, we pray that uh, each one of us uh, will uh, seek to be conformed to the image of Christ as we uh, try to incorporate the word of God into our own lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're looking at chapter 7 and last time I tried to review the first part of the chapter which is dealing with behavior within marriage, chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. And uh, in that section, um, remember, Paul is dealing with a particular problem at the church at Corinth that he announces right there in chapter 7, verse 1, that um, for some reason, we don't know exactly why, uh, there, was a, there was some people who were saying that for a married couple, it might be good for them to abstain from the normal relations. And uh, Paul says absolutely not to that. Uh, that's not the normal thing. Now, there may be cases where that would be happen and it might be necessary, necessary but, but it's, it's not, not the, the normal the thing. Normal. Uh, uh, a lot of people have... Ex have a lot of uh, theologians, a lot of New Testament scholars have devoted a lot of time to figuring out what about Corinth would cause them to come up with this idea uh, that somehow this celibate life is, is somehow superior. Uh, it's difficult to know. Uh, there was some of that in Greek philosophy, Greek culture, but it is, it is certainly true in this one, and Paul says no, that that is not, as I said, marital celibacy is not to be practiced. Um, and some were saying, well, if you can't abstain, then maybe you should get a divorce. And Paul says, no, that's not permissible grounds for divorce. So the divorce question is a complex question. You have to take into account the whole of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, fit all those verses together. Most Protestants <laughs> since the Reformation have... You know, the Catholic Church has no divorce, but, but they have uh, annulments out the, all over the place, you know. But uh, most Protestants have thought, now, it, it's varied because, uh, you know, in my earlier part of your career, a lot of Baptists would say no divorce, no remarriage, that kind of thing. Uh, Dr. Rice at Inner City held that position. But most Protestants and most today uh, that you'll find hold to at least two grounds for divorce, and that's uh, sexual immorality of some kind, uh, which can be rather broad. It could be pornography, it could be whatever, but sexual morality, and, uh, and it doesn't mean that that automatically creates a divorce, but it, it is grounds, and an abandonment of the marriage, when the one person just totally abandons, forsakes the marriage. Those two are certainly things that most Protestants uh, today agree upon, uh, in contrast to, say, the Catholic Church. So, but Paul says, not in this case, because you're asking for a divorce not on biblical grounds. Now, when a person gets a divorce, even on non-biblical grounds, they're still divorced. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if they get, say, they get married again, you can't, you can't, unhook things. You can't, you know, you can't, you can't fix things up. It's over. The marriage is over and so forth. So 
we, we go on. You know, even if somebody gets an unbiblical divorce, there's forgiveness and so forth. But um, Paul is saying in this case where someone just divorces someone, he says, no, you can't, uh, you, don't have autom you don't have permission to remarry. There's no permission to remarry on an unbiblical divorce. There is permission to remarry on a biblical divorce. Uh, you know, if somebody has a biblical divorce, there's automatic permission to remarry, but not on an unbiblical divorce. Uh, so that's what Paul is dealing with here. Now, uh, hi, you folks. Are you new? Yeah. Right. You know, the biggest debate that we've been having is how to pronounce your last name. So let me just. So I brought up my little knowledge of German because I thought maybe that name is German or Dutch. And I was telling, huh? Yeah, they do. No, they're not. No, they're not. No, they're not. I don't think so. Look at it first and see. We're just. Oh, I know, but look at that. doesn't make any difference. They use both of them. What does it start out? Chapter 7? Did it start with chapter 7? I thought I removed all the. It starts at chapter 7 rather than chapter 1? Or not? I thought I got rid of the old ones there. It's either chapter 7 or chapter... Okay, throw that away. Is there one there that I thought I got rid of them all? I put them all up in the cabinet. We had a confusion about which ones. I put them up in the cabinet. I thought I did. Did somebody get them out? This is a good. This is a good one here. That's a good one. Okay. Where is that old one at? Is that yeah? Let's put it up here. I tried to get rid of them all, but I thought maybe I didn't get them all. All right. I, I, don't worry about it now. So anyway, uh, I was talking about my knowledge of German, and I was saying that what I remember about German was that your name should be pronounced Zemer. Okay. Yeah. Well, if it was Z E I, then it would be Zimer in German, mm -hmm. and that's how I remembered it because. In German, if it's Z-I-E, you always pronounce it like the second vowel of the diphthong. So Z-I-E is Zemer, Z-E-I is Zimer. That's all I remember about German. <laughs> it did, it did. Yeah, I know it, it has. I made the big mistake one time. I asked my German teacher, I said, you know, I was trying to figure out when you're, when you're getting your doctorate, they want you to know usually a couple of languages for some odd reason that people kind of study them to get their doctorate and then they forget them, you know. And so usually German is one of them. But you don't really learn it that well. You can't, you know, you, you try to learn it well enough to read German, you know, kind of read it, but you don't really do. Today, guys use Google Translate, you know, if you get that doctoral program, you remember that. Google Translate and translate everything from German, you know. But uh, so I asked my German teacher who had got his doctorate at the University of Michigan. And I was trying to f say this rightly, but I said, do, do, do people there know German any better than you do? It, didn't, it just didn't come out right. I was trying to say, you know, how well do people who are, you know, and these doctoral programs really know German. And they, the truth is, they don't know it very well. You don't really learn it. You don't really learn it well enough to speak it or anything. You just learn it well enough to read it. Well, we're in chapter 7 here, folks. And, and we're actually <coughs> starting to look at <coughs> verses about page, I don't know what page it is, 60, about 17. We're actually on page <coughs> chapter 7, verse 20. But I was just reviewing a little bit here. We're in the second section now, um, the guiding principle in Paul's advice. So remember, we talked a lot about last time, um, chapter 7, verse 20. We talked, a, we talked a lot last time about 
what is controlling this entire section, and that is what Paul calls the present distress. There's some sort of issue at Corinth, and I'm going to talk about that in right just a few minutes in some detail. There's some sort of catastrophe, some issue at Corinth that's guiding Paul's advice. Because he says at one point, if you're not married, just stay as you are. Remember I said, well, that would put an end to the human race. If you just told everybody who's not married, well, just remain as you are. And that's his advice in this thing, remain as you are. But it's remain as you are in this present situation. So that's what I'm talking about here in, in uh, beginning on 717. We got to 720 last time. And I said there that uh, Paul's, um, the principle in 717 through 24 is this remain as you are because of the present distress, because of some social, some political, um, some um, um, physical, you know, we think maybe a famine. That's the most common view here that's going on here. And so Paul is just, and, and the point Paul is making here is, remember, that if you're a Christian, you don't have to change your status when you become a Christian. If you're a plumber, you can remain a plumber. He even says, if you're a slave, you can remain a slave. You don't have to just automatically get your freedom. Now uh, he'll have exceptions to this, as we'll see. So uh, we talked about last time the guiding principle, remain as you are. And then we talked about the first statement of the principle in verse 17, where he says, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. So when they, when they were called to salvation... You can remain as you are. Now, we said, obviously, this is not absolute. If you're, if you're, if you're a pornographer, you can't remain, you know, being a pornographer. You can't remain in a sinful uh, kind of social situation. But generally, you can remain. If you're working at GM, you can work at GM. You don't have to quit or something or like that. There's no, you can remain in that calling that you, that vocation that you were in. Now, he gives an application of that principle in verses 18 through 19, and we looked at that last time, and he gave the, the question of circumcision. So if a person is saved and they're circumcised, they don't have to be uncircumcised, and if they're uncircumcised, they don't have to be circumcised. Um, and he says very clearly that that's... that's uh, Verse 19, he says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Now that's a, remember I said last time, that's an extremely important adverse uh, that, remember I said, you know, Moses would have fainted if, you know, <laughs> if Paul would have told Moses that, you know, circumcision is nothing, Moses, and uncircumcision. Well, Moses would have thought, that's craziness. You know, it's the primary commandment God has given, the Abrahamic covenant. So, so um, this shows this great change from the Old to the New Testament. We've got a, a tremendous dispensational change here where we're not under the law and we're not having to keep circumcision and so forth. But keeping God's commands, what counts? And, you know, that we tied that into 1 Corinthians um, chapter 9 and we'll... We'll see that later on. So then we, we'll finally get to the second application. So he's given a principle, remain as you are. Here's an example. If you're circumcised, you don't need to change that. If you're uncircumcised, don't change that. One is not more holy than the other. One's not a better state. The second principle, notice verse 20, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So there, there's a second, same as the first principle. Uh, he repeats the same principle. So you can be a Christian, generally, in whatever situation you're in. And then he has an application of that in verses 21 through 23. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. So here's a second supporting illustration. You know, stay as you are, but don't let it trouble you. Um, as I say here, it's significantly different way of saying it. That is, 
uh, what we said before. Paul realizes that in this case, in contrast to both marriage, divorce, circumcision, uncircumcision, the slave could not choose his or her status. One could, one could sell oneself into slavery, but slaves could not choose freedom. So it becomes an even more powerful situation of Paul's real concern throughout this section uh, that um, those desiring change as Christians uh, should not necessarily seek change. Um, stay where you are. Don't let your social uh, condition be a concern to you. Your calling as a believer transcends, you know, your present condition. And I've seen this in my life. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but I've run into Christians who, you know, young Christians, they'll get saved and they think they need to make some drastic change in their life. Uh, they think, you know, they have a lot of zeal, which is very good. They're very zealous. They're very, you know, I got to, you know, I got to do this. I got to leave and go to the mission field, which may be a good thing, but, you know, you, you got to be sure what you're doing here. You don't necessarily just jump and make a great change in your life when you get saved. You got to evaluate things very carefully to look for the Lord's will in this stuff. But verse 22, he says, For when one was a slave, when called to faith in the Lord, is the one who was called to, as a slave is the Lord's freed person, similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. So, this is, I say, the theological reason for verses 21a is why the Christian slave should not let his or her social situation be occasion for concern. The person whose social situation was out of the slavery, when they responded to God's call to be in the Lord, has by that call been given a status with the Lord Himself that removes them from someone else's slave, even though that old relationship still continues. So, in a sense, they're now the Lord's freed person, spiritually free, um, they're no longer enslaved in that sense. Um, and I, then he mentions, really, the, the person who's not a slave is now Christ's slave. So uh, we belong to another. We belong to Christ. Um, so again, he's suggesting that these social situations are not that important. And verse 23, but he has the exception... <laughs> You're, you're, I'm sorry, he doesn't have to accept. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Uh, the exception was back in verse 21. Don't let it trouble you. If you can gain your freedom, do so. So there are exceptions to these situations, and there's one of them. A person could, could gain their freedom. That's perfectly fine. They don't have to remain a slave um, in that particular situation. These are general principles. The third statement is in verse 24 where he says, Brothers and sisters, each person as a responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So he repeats that imperative, that command three times. This is a third time. Uh, so this is an argument about, remember, those who want to dissolve their marriages for unbiblical reasons. Remember, unbiblical reasons we talked about. And so he says, no, remain as you are. You're married to an unbeliever, so that doesn't change. You don't, you don't, change your, you don't have to change your situation. Um, so uh, there are no real excuses. You know, and, you, and, and these are real problems because you'll hear these, well, you know, if I could just, if I could just... <laughs> If I could just, I could be a good Christian then. If I could just, you know, if I just didn't, wasn't married to this unsaved person, then I could really, you know, I could be a good Christian. Or if, if I could just change this, if I could just change that. If, um, so there's, there's always that desire among people to not accept where they're at in their Christian life when they become saved. So now uh, Paul moves on to advice for virgins, those never married. Remember the first section was advice for those who are married. And those who are married should remain as they are. And he has a lot of things he says about that. What about those who are never married? I say we should probably see Paul's advice 
in this section is being related to the same view of absence held by some at Corinth, which led off the chapter. Remember, they said it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In that section, the Corinthians were arguing for a change in marital status. Here the same principles being used to counsel a man not to marry the virgin he's engaged to. They may have implied that to go through with the marriage would constitute sin, as we'll see in verse 2080. Paul says you haven't sinned. Uh, any, such an idea is totally foreign to both Paul and his Jewish heritage that somehow marriage is sinful at all. Uh, totally foreign. But there's the verses that we'll see in a moment. He says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. <laughs> if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. And verse, 30, verse 36, uh, he is not sinning. They should get married. So uh, there's nothing sinful here at all, but that was being implied in the Corinthian situation. So let's look at that. Uh, Sinfulness, singleness is preferable but not required. He says in verse 25, Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one by the Lord's mercy, who is as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And as I say here, virgins in this passage refers to some young betrothed woman who, along with their fiancés, were being pressured by some Corinthians whose slogan was, It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Remember, that was 7-1. So they were saying that. That's good. Well, if that's good, then you don't want to get married. So now this engaged couple are wondering, what should we do? Because that's the advice we're getting. Um, now, Paul's, Paul's discussion here comes from basically the man's point of view, as we'll see, because in that society, and most, you know, still today probably, mostly, the man generally takes the initiative, certainly in that society. It was the cultural norm for that to happen. I say here, when Paul says, I have no command from the Lord, remember, he's not means that, you know, he just simply means that Jesus didn't teach on this particular subject. He said that before. Jesus didn't teach on this particular subject, so Paul is giving his judgment as one who's, you know, trustworthy. Um, the trouble here is that Paul can't lay down some fixed universal rule. Uh, what one does depends upon, you know, individual circumstances. He says in verse 26, because of the present crisis, <laughs> there it is, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. I say because the phrase, because of the present crisis in this verse, the word troubles in verse 28, he'll say, but if you marry, you have not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face troubles, you know. So we have this word uh, present crisis, the word troubles. And in verse 29, the time is short. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Okay, so these are all phrases that qualify in some sense what Paul is saying here. Uh, I say Paul's advice is based on some crisis, calamity, or difficult times that have come upon the Corinthian church. The exact nature of the present crisis is unclear. One likely possibility identifies the present crisis as a famine that gripped the city and caused serious economic deprivation, including social unrest caused by a grain shortage or threat of one. This is what some, you know, writers say. And there's historical evidence for this crisis in Corinth. Now, we don't have absolute proof, but there's some evidence of this. Uh, some Greek writers use this same term, Greek term for crisis here to refer to the plight of other cities facing some sort of famine, similar to what we think may be been going on here. Um, now, some think that maybe it was some sort of persecution. Uh, we don't have any mention, however, in, you know, in the Corinthian, 1 Corinthians here about a particular persecution. So we don't know for sure what the present crisis is, but one of the best guesses is maybe some sort of social, political, some sort of upheaval in the city that put everything in distress. 
You know, I, you know, I don't know if the COVID thing would be similar in the sense that that's been like the biggest disruption in my lifetime that I think I can think of, you know, that I'm sure World War II, I, I was born after that, believe it or not. But I, I'm, sure, I'm sure World War II was a, a crisis, but, you know, that, that, everything, everything was on kind of hold, you know, for that COVID thing for a while. And nobody was making any plans. Nobody was doing anything. And, and so it was, you know, it was quite a thing there. But this would be affecting the whole city. And, you know, so I say here, Paul's judgment in light of the present crisis, it's good for a man to remain as he is. Thus, Paul's point would be in light of the troubles we are already experiencing, who needs the additional burden of marriage as well? But Paul's reason for putting off marriage does not carry moral weight. Okay, it doesn't carry moral weight. It's not a moral command or an imperative. It's because of the present crisis. Therefore, Paul will also give his approval in verse 28 to those who don't follow his advice. He's just giving advice here. And remember I said, you can't take this as a moral absolute. If people remain as they are and don't get married, then we have the end of the human race, you know. So this is because of the present crisis. So verse 27, are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free? Don't look for a wife in this present crisis. So this is good for the present situation. It's not universalized for all time. Now it has been by the Roman Catholic Church. They've universalized this, that, you know, it's better not to marry, and that's a higher spiritual state. You're, you're closer to God, and, you know, you're less time in purgatory and all kinds of advantages for this celibate state. But I paid my indulgence. I know, I know, but, you know, <laughs> but you got a lot more sin to cover, so I don't think it'll, I don't think it'll work for us. I think, you're, I, think, I think you're out of trouble. But, yeah, so... They have, they have used this passage to do that, and, and it cl clearly it can't be, but, but there it is. But it can't be universalized. Uh, verse 28, but if you do marry, you haven't sinned. Virgin Mary, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face troubles in this life, and I want to spare you. So uh, again, as I say, this is advice for a special situation in, in uh, Corinth. I say, what is amazing is that Paul would even say that marriage is not a sin. For Jews, marriage was normal, expected, and impractically obligatory. Rabbi Eliezer said, any man who has no wife is no proper man. <laughs> Statements like this abound in Jewish literature at the time. Apparently, Paul's words are a response to the Corinthians' negative view of marriage, that marriage might be sin. Paul recognizes that the question of marriage lies totally outside of the category of sin, which is why he says he doesn't have any command from the Lord. But Paul believes his advice is sound because of this present crisis. So Paul's argument is advice. It reflects pastoral concern for them. It's not principles that would make singleness a better option. But I have to say, as I've said, my little hobby horse is this gift of singleness, which I think is a bunch of nonsense, um, that there is no gift of singleness. There's a gift of self-control that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, that some people have a gift where they don't, uh, they have self-control, they have control over their own sexual appetites. Uh, some people will be single in God's, in God's sovereignty, as I've said, you know, some people will not marry, and that's just the way it is, some, you know, but... There is no call for someone to be single necessarily. There's no, there's no special calling to say, you know, God's called me to be a single person. I don't believe that, and I don't think Scripture teaches that. It, it happens to a lot of people, obviously, uh, in God's sovereignty. Not everybody gets married. And some people may, uh, could choose it for, uh, for some reason. They may, they may want to go off to some dangerous mission field and they may say I just you know I'm better if I'm single you know I don't have to I can handle this better or they, they may have some you know special reason but I don't think there is some special calling or giftedness for singleness but that's I admit I'm 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 fighting against the uh, the current philosophy that we, that's so common in Christianity today and you can see it's not the Jewish philosophy <laughs> 
the Jewish philosophy was, and that's why they arrange marriages, because every man is going to have a wife, whether he wants one or not, pretty much, because it's going to be arranged for him by his parents, and there's no, there's no getting around that. Well, let's look at uh, Paul's reasons for singleness in verses 29 through 35. He says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, as we are to understand that he now intends to explain what he just said. What I mean, brothers and sisters, I'm going to explain this, is that the time is short. There's that another one of those phrases. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are unhappy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for the world in its present form is passing away. So I say the basic premise of these verses seems to be that from now on believers might have a totally new perspective as to the relationship with the world. This perspective is given in the form of five illustrations introduced by the words as if. If taken literally, the five as if clauses become absurd. As, for example, the first one, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who had wives should live as they have none. Well, you can't take that absolutely literally. That would be grounds for divorce. That would be grounds for divorce, yes. That would be, that would be grounds for divorce, you know. You know. <laughs> Um, uh, it would contradict what he just said about marriage. But they, they are, they're not to be taken literally. What Paul is calling for is a radical new attitude toward the world. It's an attitude. Paul expects the Corinthians to continue doing all five of these things. Live, mourn, be happy, buy, use things. But he's calling on Corinthians to live detached from the world, that is, as totally free from his control. Therefore, the Christian lives in a world just as the unsaved, married, sorrowing, rejoicing, buying, making use of the world, but none of these determines one's life. They are not the controlling factors. They're not the most important things. They're not the most important relationship. And there's not much, there's, not a, there's, not, there's hardly a marriage, there's not hardly a relationship more important than marriage, but there is one <laughs> more important than marriage. And that's what Paul is getting at here. The Christian is marked by eternity, therefore he or she is not under the dominating power of those things that dictate the existence of others. The Corinthians think that the unmarried should stay as they are, but for the wrong reason, celibacy. Paul is urging them a different worldview. Because of the present crisis, shortness of time, the betrothed may wish to remain single, but being single or married itself is not a crucial question. Either is all right... Paul has said, and will say again, what is important is that in either situation, must, one must live as if not. That is, without one's relationship to the world as the determining factor. And that's hard to do, but, I mean, um, we have to remember that our relationship to the Lord is the most important thing and balance these other relationships. Um, and he says the reason for this is because the world in its present form is passing away. Christ's death and resurrection has brought a tremendous change, determined a different course, and a different course for us. Um, so we know what the future holds, and we're supposed to live differently because of that and so forth. Um, so, um, you know, we go through life doing the everyday normal things the unsaved person does. So externally, our lives may look exactly like the unsaved person. We're marrying, we're sorrowing, we're rejoicing, making use of the world. But for the Christian, these should not be the most important things as they are for the unbeliever. They're the most important things. So we, we need to live, you know, Paul is really saying, with, you know, as we commonly hear, an eternal perspective. Uh, you know, as Paul says in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind... You know, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Then he says in 32a, I would like you to be free from concern. With these words I say, I would like you to be free from concern. 
Paul means free from concern as long as you're in this present world. Because of our new life in Christ, we ought to be able to live our lives differently from the unsaved who are naturally anxious about most everything, because for them everything is primarily about here and now. As for believers, our lives look similar to the unsaved because we still buy and marry, but we ought to do so as if not, as he said. That is, as if they are not what determines our existence. What ultimately is determinative is our new life in Christ, our vision of the future, not whether we're married or whether we're single. So that should keep us free from concern, whether we're married or single. Keep or try to keep our eyes on eternity, which is a, a daily battle, certainly. He says in 32b, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. How can he please the Lord? A married man is concerned about the affairs of, his, of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are, interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how an unmarried woman, a married woman is concerned about the affairs of how she can please her husband. I say Paul describes two legitimate life situations a person finds oneself in, either married or unmarried, and how those situations affect their own concerns. The, unmarried, the married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife, and one in the sense of verses 30 and 31. This is not to be taken negatively, I don't think at all, but as a simple statement of reality. The real difference between the two men is that the married man's interests are divided, and they should be to some degree. I mean, that's the problem with a lot of Christian marriages. I mean, I, well, I don't know if it is, but it is possible. You know, it's possible, it's possible for, I mean, sometimes you hear about pastors who neglect their wives, <laughs> you know. So uh, that can happen, you know. He can be so concerned that he do, neglects his wife, neglects his family uh, because he's, you know, he's, trying to do the work of the Lord and all that kind of stuff. And so you can get those kind of situations. Um, and so it's a legitimate concern. A single person doesn't have to be concerned about that other person. We legitimately have to, and we want to be. You know, we, we love the other person. We want to be concerned about their needs. But that takes time. That takes effort and so forth. And... That means uh, you're naturally, your interests are divided. It's a legitimate and normal thing that is an advantage for the single person. That is absolutely true. There's no, there's, there's no truth in that. And so the Catholic Church is right in that sense that <laughs> those, you know, those single priests, in theory, could be more devoted to their work than, than somebody who's married. There, there's no truth. There is truth in that, you know. Uh, but it's not a higher spiritual state in any sense like that. Um, no, no one is superior spiritually because one is singular, one is married. Verse 35, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a way, a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. I say this verse brings to an end the argument of verses 29 through 35 by stating the purpose of what Paul is saying. It seems clear that Paul's preference for the present is for Christians to remain single for the singleness, but it's careful to say that advice is not meant to restrict them. And he's going to say that here, marriage is no sin. But now returns to the specific problem, brings it to a conclusion. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. So uh, marriage is not a sin. If a person wants to go through with it, Paul says that's perfectly fine. Um, and this probably, as I say, reflects you know, a problem in the actual church, that there are people who want to get married, but they're being advised not to uh, by some people in the church who are saying it's better not to. Um, Paul says, no, that's not sin. Verse 37, but the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, he has control over his own will, he's made up his mind not to marry, that man also does the right thing. 
He takes the opposite situation here. Um, the man who chose the Corinthian point of view, that is, it's better to remain single as it is, but if the man chooses this of his own free will, you know, if he's not doing it under, you know, some sort of pressure, he's not yielding to the false notion that it's morally good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, that's their position, you remember, then stated in verse 1, some are saying, as long as he's doing it not for that reason, but he has legitimate reasons he chooses not to, Paul says that's, that's okay too. Um, but he says he should be convinced in his own mind. Notice he's, he, he wants to avoid this because they're getting pressure. There's tremendous pressure here in Corinth. Hey, don't marry. Don't get married. And so he, he states it very clearly. He settled the matter in his own mind. He's under no compulsion, has control over his own will. He's made up his own mind, you know. So no compulsion outside restraint or compulsion. This is what he's determined to do. Um, so in that case, then he, there's no reason he has to marry. He's not compelled to marry. Verse 38, so then he who marries, the virgin does right, but he does not marry does better in this particular situation, I said. Uh, not because one choice is morally superior to the other. It's because of the present distress. That's what's controlling this section here, the present distress. Well, we come now to the general principle in verses 39 through 40. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. <clears throat> I say the final word to the woman is something, comes as something of a surprise. It assumes that the woman is married, which is not the subject under discussion in verses 25 through 38. Instead, the final words belong back, take us back to 1 through 24, where the Corinthians were trying to dissolve their marriage. This passage appears, therefore, to function as a concluding word for both sections, married and virgins, by repeating in a different way the principal teaching of verses 1 through 24, that those married should not separate from their husbands, and by urging the same truth on the virgins who go through with their marriages. That is, if the virgin goes through with their marriage, then the general rule is that she is married for life. The first statement, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, reflects the general teaching of the Bible. The marriage bond is in effect until her husband dies. After that, she has the same option as the man who wants to get married. She is free to marry anyone she chooses, but if she chooses to remarry, she should only be in the Lord. I say here, we should not understand this verse as a prohibition against all divorce and remarriage. That's to ignore the context, which is that the Corinthians were seeking to dissolve their marriages with without biblical grounds. Kind of stressed that as we went through that. They want to dissolve the marriage, and Paul says, no, you must remain unmarried or be, uh, uh, or, or, uh, be reunited with your spouse. That's because they have no biblical grounds for this. Uh, Paul is assuming, for the sake of argument here, there's no legitimate grounds for divorce in this situation. So we have to take this verse, as I said, with the rest of Scripture, <clears throat> which is a complex thing. Uh, looking at the Old and New Testament, putting all these verses together, as I said, <clears throat> the most common, you know, the common Protestant view among Protestants since the Reformation has been there are at least two grounds for marriage, for divorce, uh, sexual immorality and desertion. There is some discussion about other grounds, but I won't try to enter into that now. <clears throat> well, that's a, that's a, yeah, obviously, well. That, yeah, yeah. There's debate about that, whether that is. Certainly, if a woman's being abused, she should leave. You know, she shouldn't be involved. And that hasn't always been the case. When I first came here, in 1983, I can remember there was a church in Canada and uh, <clears throat> there was a woman who was, she was being abused by her husband 
And the pastor of the church told her she had to stay. He killed her. Her husband killed her. You know? <laughs> well, no one would do that today. I don't think any pastor would make that kind of nonsense today. But well, no, that's just, that was just sort of common. That was, that was just, that was not as uncommon as it may seem. You know, that wasn't as uncommon 40 years ago as it may seem today. You know, women were often counseled, as we're learning now, women were often counseled by pastors to remain in their marriages. That was not uncommon counsel. It was unfortunate counsel. It was wrong counsel, but it was not uncommon, totally uncommon by then. But some would agree what you just said, and I, I think there may be some grounds for what you just said, but I won't, let's not try to solve that right now. So uh, this general principle is that a woman is bound as long in general as that. He says, verse 40, in my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is, and I think I too have the Spirit of God. I say here, Paul repeats uh, his previous belief that remaining single is the better option for the woman given the current situation in Corinth, the present crisis. But he adds it is his personal judgment or opinion that the woman will be happier if she remains single. However, Paul does not tell us why he thinks this is the case. We can assume that his reasons are the same as he's already stated in this chapter, that is, the present crisis. In a way that's similar to the language in verse 25, I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Paul adds that his opinion is not without some basis. He notes, I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Well, this is a difficult thing to interpret, and there's two possible ways to understand this. The words can be interpreted in two possible senses. On the one hand, it's possible that Paul is taking one more jab at the Corinthians' view <clears throat> that they are especially spiritual. Thus, Paul could mean, if you think you have the Spirit, remember that I too have the Spirit. That is, he could be speaking with sarcasm, maybe resorting to a bit of sarcasm that we've already seen in the letter. We've already seen that in chapter 7. We've seen that in chapter 6. We've seen, you know, we've seen Paul speak sarcastically with irony, with bitter irony in, in this book already. And so we could be saying, you know, uh, if you, you know, I think, I think I've got the spirit too here, friends. You know, I'm, you know, you know I think I can speak authoritatively on this. Uh, so that's possible. Another possible interpretation is that the words may simply be strengthening of his opinion, as in verse 25, that he's not simply on his own judgment. That is, he also has the help of the Spirit in making these judgments. So I'm not sure which one of those is the best. They're both possible there. Well, we come now to a new, a totally new section in the book. Remember I said that, you know, we could almost look at this book almost like different books because you got chapters one through four. That's kind of one section. Chapter five is sort of on its own. Chapter six is on its own. Uh, chapter seven. And now eight, nine, and ten are another section that are dealing with one subject. And uh, they're not necessarily related to what's gone on before. Uh, remember, the Corinthians had written a letter to the Apostle Paul. And, uh, and remember we said he's also heard, he says it's commonly reported, you remember, and he's heard, he's had reports back from Corinth. So he's responding to a lot of the situations at Corinth. <clears throat> you know, it's far different than a book like Romans where Paul is just laying out the gospel to people he's never met before. <clears throat> Here he's responding to problems in a church that he founded. And now he specifically is responding to a letter beginning in chapter 7, remember? He said, now concerning the matters that you wrote about, concerning what you wrote about. And now he picks that up again here in chapter 8. Remember, we talked about this uh, before uh, because he says in chapter 8, verse 1, now about, remember we said that that phrase, 
now about is used in chapter 7 and then chapter 8. So he's probably referring to this letter they wrote to him. So they wrote to him about this marriage situation, and they, then they wrote to him about a very a difficult problem that's commonly called food sacrifice to idols. And I've got quite an introduction here because uh, this is a, a, a complex problem, and so I'm going to just try to go through this here in the time we have. I say the issue that begins with 8.1 continues all the way through 11.1. The new topic is food sacrifice to idols. That's actually one word in the original Greek, but it's translated food sacrifice to idols commonly in most English translations. It's introduced by Paul's use of the word now about, the same expression we saw in Charter chapter 7. So he's responding to an issue from the Corinthians letter. Food sacrifice to idols in this case is primarily, if not exclusively, meat. So we're talking about meat offered to an idol, as we'll see in an idol temple. In the ancient world, meat was not commonly available and was expensive. So if you study anything about the history, you'll read this, that most people didn't have meat in their regular diet. It just, only rich people generally had meat in their diet. Most of the people in Corinth would eat meat mainly when they were served at one of the pagan temples in the city. These occasions would be state festivals honoring pagan gods, feasts put on by the trade guilds honoring their gods, private celebrations of various kinds such as celebrating the birth of a child, etc. So there were times when people would go to the temples. Remember we said there was you know, a lot of temples at Corinth. You know, at least 26 temples are, are sacred places that have been discovered in Corinth. Gods for everything. Every trade union had a god or a goddess that, you know, was their patron kind of thing. So there was lots of reasons for going to these temples for celebrations. They could be state festivals, city festivals, uh, your, your guild, your society, Private celebrations like the birth of a child. We have actual uh, from Corinth, uh, you know, uh, actual birthday invitations to people uh, saying, please come to the birthday of my one year old child at the Temple of Serapis. Uh, so we, we actually have invitations where people are inviting people to come to these celebrations. I say, the Corinthians had attended these celebrations and temples all of their lives. Even at a private celebration, sacrifices and worship of pagan gods was part of the event. So you might have a birthday party for your child if you were wealthy at the temple, but part of that would be offering a sacrifice to the pagan god, to the god of that temple, the god that you were saying. There, there was no divorcing of you know, religion you know, from personal life, from, from your celebration, religion was this, pagan religion was involved in everything. So if you went to one of these things, there would always be a worship of the pagan god. Now, at many of these things we know from historical records, not the birthday celebration of a one-year-old child, but at a lot of these festivals there was entertainment. It was often sexual entertainment. It was sometimes uh, homosexual, heterosexual. There was always usually heavy drinking at these kinds of things. So we've got all kinds of records, historical records and documents about this. We know what was going on here. So, uh, and these people went to these things all of their lives. I say here, those who were able to afford it could buy meat at the local meat market. Apparently, most meat that was sold in the marketplace in cities like Corinth was first offered as a sacrifice in the pagan temple or shrine. Now, Jews were absolutely forbidden from eating such meat. And they killed their own meat, and, and they called it kosher, as they do today. Kosher is so prepared, uh, specially prepared meat. They, they couldn't do this. But as we'll see when we get to chapter 10, Paul allows uh, Christians at Corinth to eat meat that had been sacrificed in the temple. 
you know, if it, it had first been sacrificed in the temple and then brought from the temple and sold in the meat market, he said, that's fine. Eat anything sold in the meat market without asking questions of conscience. So just because it's been dedicated to some pagan god in the temple and brought to the meat market, when you go to the meat market, you don't have to ask any questions about it. You just get to buy the meat and eat it. But as we'll see, that's different from going to the temple and eating the meat. So I say here, what Paul condemns in chapter 8 and following is food sacrificed to idols. This phrase, I say one Greek word, has a very specific meaning, which is meat sacrificed to an idol and eaten in the temple precincts. It does not refer to a sacrifice that has come from the temple and is eaten elsewhere. Paul allows Christians to eat meat that has been sacrificed in the temple if it was simply purchased in the meat market. 1 Corinthians 10, 25, I quoted, eat anything sold in the meat market without asking questions of conscience. But he strictly forbids the eating of meat sacrificed in a pagan temple as part of a pagan ritual. Eating meat, food sacrificed to idols is wrong because it's essential idolatry. So here's the problem, idolatry. You're going to this pagan temple. You say, I'm just going with my fellow electrical workers. I don't know what they, <laughs> leather workers. <laughs> I'm just going with my fellow leather workers. We're just having a party there at the temple. You know, man, we're not, well, no. The problem is there's always pagan worship involved with that, and you can't be a part of that. I say the issue of food sacrifice to idols has been an issue a few years earlier at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, when church leaders met to discuss the issue of circumcision for Gentiles. There the decision was made that Gentile converts were not under the law of Moses, but should abstain from food sacrificed to idols. That's the same word as we have here. From blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So remember the Acts 15, they say, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. They're not under the Mosaic law, but they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols, same word is used here, from blood, from meat of strangled animals, sexual morality, because of the idolatry involved. There is evidence that the choking of the sacrifice, strangling it, drinking or tasting the blood, took place in pagan temples. We can assume that Paul addressed this issue when he first evangelized Corinth in Acts 18, 1-18, and in his first letter to them mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. So Paul has addressed this issue, we can assume, but it's a real problem. These people have gone to the temple all their lives, and Paul's saying, no, you can't, you know? From what we can gather from 8 through 10, some of the Corinthians were rejecting Paul's earlier prohibitions of going to pagan temples and the associated festivities. They were apparently defending their right to go to the temple for a meal, arguing that idols do not really exist, food is irrelevant as far, irrelevant as, far as our standing with God is concerned. This argument is based on their knowledge that there is only one true God, idols are not real, and food is morally neutral. Therefore, eating in temples dedicated to the so-called gods is harmless. But they were going a step further, as we'll see. They were encouraging, perhaps even causing some Christians, who are called the weak here, to join them at these pagan temples. With the result, this was affecting the spiritual lives of these weak Christians who could see that it was a problem going to these pagan temples. I say a common view of this section conceives of the quarrel between the weak and strong in the church. The weak refused to eat food in, sold in the marketplace that had been first dedicated to pagan idols, while the strong saw nothing with it. Paul is said to basically agree with the strong, that the strong are correct, but they need to make allowances for the consciousness of the weak. But this view is not quite correct. Paul never identifies any particular group as the strong, nor does he ever address the weak directly. This misinterpretation comes from reading the problem and categories of Romans 14 and 15 back into 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. In Romans, Paul is concerned with restrictions in the law of Moses about food and days. There Paul agrees with the strong that the food and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament are not binding for Christians. 
But some Jewish believers are weak in faith. That is, they don't have the, yet have the faith to believe that the Mosaic restrictions have been set aside. Thus they believe to violate these restrictions would be sinning against God. There Paul says the strong who are actually correct about what the Bible teaches must curtail their liberties in these areas if, they, if their actions would cause their fellow believers to fall in sin. So that's one problem. That's Romans 14, 15. Uh, you know, I've read about this illustration in Papua New Guinea where the earliest uh, converts there often resisted uh, missionaries who wanted to use traditional music instruments like the drum, <laughs> like their kandu drum in their worship, worship services. They explained that we just can't stand that drum in our worship services because when we hear those drums, we hear the voices of the spirits. So that's a, that's a Romans 14 and 15 question. See, they were weak in faith. They thought there was something wrong with the drums, that you know, beating on these drums, that, you know, that brings up the evil spirits. So the, the advice would be, yeah, don't do those drums for these people. They're weak in their faith. You know, we don't want to do that. But later, Christians there didn't have any problem with it, were able to incorporate the dream. But that's not the problem we have here in 1 Corinthians. Let me read this last paragraph and we'll quit. But in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, the situation is somewhat different. The problem is not food per se, but eating in pagan temples. This is what the Greek word translated food sacrifice to idols means, eating meat in a pagan temple. For Paul, this is idolatry, pure and simple. And he absolutely rejects the Corinthians' view that attendance at the temples of Corinth is acceptable. In chapter 10, he will forbid it. The word strong does not occur in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. There is no strong position that Paul agrees with that is biblically correct, as there is in Romans 14. In other words, the so-called strong in 1 Corinthians 8 are biblically wrong, whereas the strong in Romans 14 are biblically correct, though they're wrong and not caring for the spiritual well-being of their brothers and sisters. The situation in 1 Corinthians is similar in the sense that the well-being of the weak is being disregarded by those Corinthians who are influencing them back into idolatry. Well, that's a lot to undertake in there, but we'll try to explain it more fully next time. We better stop here because I've gone over the time.